2: From
1: the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from fresh water to salt water. Yama and welcome to TV Radio. Bertrand Tungandami, I am Bertrand Tungandami. Coming up in your program this Monday, November 13, conversation with Global Indigenous Rights Advocate and Trailblazer for Cultural Heritage Preservation, Henrietta Marie A.M., is joining us after receiving a Distinguished uh, Alumni Award at the University of South Australia. In our conversation, we look back at Henrietta Marie's work and achievements that have earned her this prestigious uh, recognition. We also have shared stories by NITV's in our program, including a historic land handbag to traditional owners in WA, a landmark legal case against the Australian government over the impact of climate change on the Torres Strait that has recommenced in the federal court. We also have more from uh, NOLA's uh, NITV's NOLA program. On NITV Radio today, we also continue our conversation with uh, Tristan Pemberton, director of Gravel Road, a documentary about the life of Jane Meaning, singer-songwriter of the most remote indigenous rock band in the world, the Desert Stars. All these stories and more coming to you after the latest news. And today, the program is coming to you from the land of the Wurundjeri, Wurundjeri, Waiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. Australia Day 1972
3: saw the first Aboriginal embassy erected outside Parliament The native title legislation must be amended.
2: And they've walked this land so
4: many times before anybody came.
0: I am sorry.
1: This bulletin Victoria's largest gathering of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities since the October 14 referendum hailed as a rejuvenating celebration of culture. The federal government says 80 people have been released from indefinite immigration detention and opt as CEO to front Senate inquiry into nationwide outage. Victoria's largest gathering of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities since the October 14 referendum has taken place at Camp Jungai on Tangarung lands on the weekend. Clans from across Victoria were represented at the gathering with over 300 people in attendance. Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organization CEO Jill Kala said the historic event was an energizing and rejuvenating celebration of Aboriginal culture. Today
4: has been amazing, um, memorable in fact, um, uh, with yarning circles, basket weaving, spear throwing, ceremonial dancing and you know what, both myself and Aunty Muggs going to have a go at dancing. Um, I'd like to do a
2: shout out to Uncle Herb uh, Patton uh, for coming up and also... Alana Atkinson, um, because she's an amazing singer
4: um, and uh, fantastic.
1: The Federal Government says 80 people have been released from immigration detention after the High Court found indefinite detention was unlawful. Immigration Minister Andrew Giles has revealed the Government was prepared for last Wednesday's decision and dozens of people on appropriate visa conditions had already been released. The reversal of a a two-decade-old decision was delivered in the case of a Rohingya man from Myanmar who faced the prospect of detention for life because no country would resettle him due to a criminal conviction for child sex abuse. At the time of the decision, there were more than 90 detainees in a similar situation to the plaintiff and another 340 in long-term detention. The opposition's immigration spokesperson, Dantean, says the government needs to say more about the people who have been released so far. The public needs to know and the public wants to know what is the
3: government doing to keep them safe? What what are the, the character grounds that these people were being held on? What are they doing to liaise with state and territory police?
1: The federal government is being urged to legislate grants administration reforms to bring an end to so-called pork-barrelling. Independent MP Ellen Haynes and Liberal MP Bridget Archer are introducing a motion to the House of Representatives today to bring an end to the political use of community grants. Ms Haynes says greater fairness in grants funding is vitally important for volunteer-led organisations, small businesses and local governments.
5: Australians are absolutely sick to death of being ripped off by governments of all persuasions when it comes to fair spending of taxpayer money. Grants programs right across the nation, big and small, have been ripped off for generations actually, uh, for decades. We need to put the Parliament back in the oversight mode when it comes to grants administration.
1: Support ours of Whistleblower David McBride have gathered outside the ACT Supreme Court as the trial of the former military lawyer who revealed allegations of Australian soldiers he claimed committed war crimes in Afghanistan begins. The Commonwealth is prosecuting Mr McBride for allegedly leaking classified documents under charges of theft of Commonwealth property, breaching the Defence Act and unauthorised disclosure of information. A subsequent inquiry following his allegations found that Australian Special Forces committed at least 39 unlawful killings during the Afghan war and treated two prisoners with cruelty. Ahead of the hearing, Mr McBride told more than 100 supporters who played bug bug, bug pipes and uh, blew whistles outside the court, Today I serve my country. The federal government has softened its objections to a ceasefire in the Middle East after a weekend of nationwide demonstrations by pro-Palestinian and pro-Israeli supporters. Foreign Minister Tanya Plibersek has clarified comments made by Foreign Minister Penny Wong urging for what she called steps towards a ceasefire by saying the government supports working towards an end to hostilities rather than outright pushing for an end to violence now. Victoria Police say 45,000 people attended a pro-Palestinian rally in Melbourne's CBD, which followed violent clashes on Friday night after a suspicious fire at a Palestinian business in Coalfield in the city's southeast. Senate Nationals leader Bridget McKenzie has told Seven Sunrise Senator Wong's comments were an equivocation at a time when Australia's community is feeling unsafe. Calling for
5: a ceasefire as if there was some equivalence between the actions of Hamas and the actual reality of war is absolutely appalling, and it needs to be highly condemned.
1: The Greens leader, Adam Barnes, says by not calling openly for a ceasefire, the government is supporting the invasion of Gaza.
0: The Foreign Minister says the government's concerned about attacks on hospitals, and rising number of civilian deaths. The foreign minister says that the government has concerns, yet Labor will not call for a ceasefire.
1: Hamas officials have rejected claims from the Israeli military that they refused 300 litres of fuel from Israel intended for use at the struggling Al-Shifa hospital. In a statement, Hamas says there are not associated with the al-Shifa hospital management, which they claim is operated by the Palestinian Health Ministry, a division of the West Bank-based Palestinian Authority, and one of Hamas's political rivals. This comes as the al-Shifa and al-Quds hospitals in northern Gaza have closed to new patients, with staff saying Israeli bombardment and a lack of fuel and medicine mean those already being treated may die. The Palestinian Red Crescent Society says Al Quds is no longer functioning, and the World Health Organization says Al Shifa is not functioning as a hospital anymore. Al Shifa Hospital Director Muhammad Abu Salmiya has told Al Jazeera Israeli officials had reached out to him with an offer of 300 liters, but the supplies were in a dangerous area and short of the 8,000 to 12,000 liters required to power the hospital every day. Back home, a Senate inquiry will look into the optus outages which saw millions of customers unable to access phone and internet for several hours with hearings beginning this week. Green Senator Sarah Hanson Young, who will chair the inquiry after moving for it in Parliament following last week, says the company's CEO Kelly Bear Rosmarin will front this, the inquiry this Friday, november 17. More than 10 million Optus customers and businesses were affected last week when an outage prevented people from connecting to the internet or making or receiving calls, including landline calls to triple zero, taking more than 12 hours to resolve. Hanson Young says the inquiry will seek to find out the cause of the outage and how to prevent future outages as well as why Optus kept the government and customers in the dark on the day.
5: Australians deserve better and they need to know that when they have to access their their bank, when they have to be able to call emergency, when they need to be able to do their business via their phone and internet, that they can trust that they have a reliable service.
1: Survivors of thalidomide and their families will receive a nationwide apology in federal parliament from Prime Minister Antony Albanese. The formal apology on November 29 in the House of Representatives will be followed by the unveiling of a national memorial site in Canberra the next day, attended by survivors affected by the morning sickness drug that caused birth defects. The apology was one of the recommendations of a 2019 Senate report, which found that if the federal government had acted more quickly when thalidomide was linked to birth defects, 20% of survivors may not have been affected. It's estimated there are 146 thalidomide survivors in Australia who are registered with a support program, although the exact number affected by the drug is unknown and to sport in rugby union Melbourne have enlisted an AFL premiership sports psychologist to address their Super Rugby Pacific shortcomings and help their Wallabies players deal with the fallout from the their World Cup disappointment psychologists Psychologist Andrew Watterson, who was part of the Melbourne Demons' AFL flag success in 2021, has joined the Rebels to support players including Wallabies playmaker Carter Gordon and new signings Daniela Tupou and Lukan Salakaya Loto. Coach Kevin Foote is hoping the Rebels can recover mentally from close games, which proved costly to their finals hopes, while also supporting Wallabies players who were part of Australia's worst-ever World Cup campaign. The Melbourne side have narrowly missed the Super Playoffs in a number of seasons, only participating in finals once in 2020 in a domestic format due to COVID-19 restrictions. And now, having a look at the weather around the country, Broome partly cloudy 32, Perth showers easing 29, Adelaide mostly sunny 25, Melbourne sunny 19, Hobart partly cloudy 20, Albury Wodonga sunny 26, Canberra also partly cloudy 27, Wollongong a shower 220, Sydney much the same 23, Newcastle partly cloudy 24, Brisbane sunny 31, Townsville mostly sunny 30 a shower 231 Early Springs mostly sunny 36 Darwin a shower 2 and a possible storm 33 degrees and the Torres Strait Islands a sunny day and the top of 31 degrees and that is niTV radio news niTV
5: radio Monday. Wednesday, Friday at 1 p.m. or anytime
1: online. Hey, I'm Bertrand Tungandami and you're listening to NITV Radio coming to you from Nam on the Kulin Nation. Coming up next, we have, a share, we have shared stories by NITV's Nala program, including the story of a historic land handbag to traditional owners in WA, so, a landmark legal case against the Australian government over the impact of climate change on the Torres Strait Islands that has recommenced in the federal court, and more. In the program today, we also continue our conversation with Tristan Pemberton, director of Gravel Road, a film about the life of Jay Meaning, a singer-songwriter of the most remote indigenous rock band in the world, The Desert Stars. But first, a young with Henrietta Marie A.M., a Yidinji and G. elder who grew up in northern Queensland. Her experiences in Adelaide while completing a diploma in teaching and a graduate diploma of arts at the University of, of South Australia were instrumental in shaping her future and the foundation for her commitment to cultural heritage and advocacy for more than a billion First Nations people around the world. And her achievements have earned her a uh, really prestigious award. Global Indigenous Rights Advocate and Blazer for Cultural Heritage Preservation, also the first Aboriginal Australian to be appointed to a United Nations agency, and later Marie AM, has just had another accolade added to her many Achievements and Recognitions, University of South Australia's Distinguished Alumni Award. And I'm happy to say Henrietta Marie AM has just joined us on NITV Radio to explore the significance of this recognition. Henrietta Marie, first of all, congratulations and welcome to NITV Radio.
4: Thank you. Thank you for
1: having me. Now, this is an accolade acknowledging uh, your achievements in, uh, in the many areas uh, of your illustrious career. But if there's uh, one aspect I'd like us to first focus on, first and uh, foremost, is uh, a new tool you develop together with your husband, identifying and measuring uh, and also monitors institutional racism. Um, This is something extremely important, especially considering uh, the current uh, context. Uh, Tell us about uh, this new tool.
4: Yes, um, it it came about through um, an investigation some years ago when we uh, through our company uh, looked at the discrimination within the hospital sector. From that, we had come to the conclusion that it was more of an institutional uh, racism um, that was happening, and we we need to find out how that would how we would explore that. So what we then did was we certainly we investigated to see whether there had been a tool designed out there on a national international scale, and. Uh, coming to the conclusion that there was not so we decided that we would um, we would work on a tool that we could um, ourselves use and that would be on uh, identifying monitoring uh, institutional racism in the hospital health services uh, throughout Queensland.
1: And is that uh, replicable in other areas 'Cause uh, Yeah, yeah. Because this is something that uh, should be uh, replicated and um, uh, disseminated right across the country, if not even the world, where you know institutional racism exists.
4: Uh, yes, it can be adapted to other areas such as gender, disability, education, justice, etc. And we have had uh, a number of inquiries uh, from. Other countries actually asking about the tool and wanting to again use that tool uh, in in their own country so and we, we just had a, a discussion only a few days ago uh, with uh, someone in Canada to also apply the tool um, there in what they were doing
1: yeah. Now coming back to your latest accolade uh, recognition at uh, the University of South Australia Alumni Awards. It appears uh, most of the people who are recognised uh, on the awards night uh, were recognised for their work and achievements uh, in um, heritage uh, preservation. You've achieved a lot of fast and uh, done a lot of work in that area, especially to sustain Aboriginal cultural Diversity across uh, Northern Australia. Tell us more about uh, your work in that area.
4: I had been engaged in, in biological diversity, genetic resource use and traditional knowledge of Indigenous people in Australia before I, I left to go to, to the UN. I, the UN job was I, I actually applied for the position that came up with the Convention on Biological Diversity, Secretariat. Uh, in Montreal, and uh, I, I I got noticed that I had been successful, and that was in 1996. So we went um, to live in Canada, and of course, um, that's where the Secretary on the Convention on Biological Diversity. For me, it was a very important job. It's really about um, biological diversity, life on Earth, um, you know, and our planet. When, when I first took it on, uh, our first two weeks, in the job, I was sent to um, San Diego, Chile, for for a UN meeting, and uh, that was pretty scary at first because I had never travelled in that part of the world, and uh, I uh, at that time I didn't not have any Spanish. Um, of course, you know that Montreal is a French-speaking part of um, Canada, Canada yeah. and, um, and uh, I did have some Sp- uh, French, but not not a lot. So I had to again relearn um that uh from french and and get a little bit more comfortable with, with french but uh, mainly i was working with a lot of the spanish speaking countries and um therefore, you know i i decided to take on spanish i'm not very good at it but communication wise it was uh, it was needed for me to to be able to get by the job uh, i was responsible for was articles 8j 10c 172 and 184 and these were really, really um, important in terms of Indigenous and local communities around the world. And that those articles specifically reference Indigenous and local communities. My very first meeting that I was responsible for was in Madrid, Spain. Yeah. And at that meeting, we discussed a number of things. Intellectual property, uh, access and benefit sharing, and Indigenous and local communities participation within the UN uh, conventions and so we achieved all that um, the, the and also to set up a working group on Article 8J that would really discuss and debate uh, these issues that arises in terms of Indigenous local communities and the biological resources which we know are very much part of their uh, spirituality, their cultures, their traditions and the way they relate to the uses of genetic resources for food, for agriculture and for medicinal property. The importance of my job I guess was to ensure that I was well briefed on the information I got. So it was all about collecting data uh, and with the most updated information I could possibly have from all over the globe, from policies legislation, etc. That allowed me to be able to write a much more informed paper for discussion and deliberation by parties who were signatory to that convention. I, I guess that from the first meeting in Madrid, we did achieve to address the at, at open-ended working group on Article 8J. We also um, achieved the need to take further the intellectual property and benefit sharing issues of Indigenous and local communities uh, within the guidelines of the Convention on Biological Diversity and uh, also the participation uh, and that was participation was really through the Ad-Hoc Epidemic Working Group. WIPO uh, after we had the COP meeting in Bratislava those recommendations were further deliberated and supported uh, by um, the, the parties. That then allowed WIPO to take under its wing the further discussion under the Intergovernmental Committee which was set up on the um, traditional knowledge and intellectual property and particularly, um, again, with reference to genetic resource use and benefit sharing. So that that discussion now is part of uh, further discussion under WIPO. At the time I was there, I also designed um, under the WIPO Academy a um, master's course on... Indigenous people and intellectual property.
1: Is it still there today?
4: From what I believe it's still yeah, is there today and um, but oh, of course it's been updated and revamped so um, I'm not sure where it's at uh, in terms of how many people are actually taking on that course.
1: I guess that's uh, not all. You're also acknowledged uh, in uh, really being instrumental in uh, the development of uh, other guidelines I can think of uh uh, the environmental, social impact assessments of uh, developments and uh, things are uh, ranging to the protection of secret sites.
4: So these were some of the, um, I guess, acknowledgements, um, I mean, achievements I did. Plus, I get another big achievement while I was with the CBD um, was the Aquagon guidelines, which I had drafted uh, for discussion and deliberation by parties which had been accepted and gone through and it's ACWGOM guidelines with AKWE AKWE KON so you know you can and that was the the guidelines that was for the conduct of cultural, environmental and social impact assessment regarding development that proposed to take place on or, or which are likely to impact on sacred sites and on lands and waters traditionally occupied or used by indigenous and local communities. And that was, uh, I guess the, the achievement that I, um, that I was able to, the, the areas in which I was able to achieve in and, uh, make it happen. And these guidelines can be used globally. Um, I'm yet to see it being recognized and used more broadly here in Australia. Uh, I know other countries have used it.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and you're doing more research. Uh, leading an Australia Research Council project at uh, the University of Queensland, and about this research, uh, it said you said if Aboriginal peoples are to move forward, their unique knowledge must be preserved at an economic level, so they can be rewarded for their expertise, and it can benefit the nation. And you say it's been done in the arts which has contributed immensely to Australia, to the Australian economy. Can you elaborate a little bit more on this for us?
4: In, in the arts, there's a code, code of practice that's uh, given in terms of um, making sure that the artist work is certainly done by an Indigenous person. With the areas of cultural resources uh, relating to mainly the bush food industry, it's really important for us to also ensure that there's some kind of practice there or code uh, I think that would show that um, when it's used, it's actually being used by Indigenous people. It is an Indigenous product that that grows locally and uh, grows in, in this country and is now used. I mean, there's been a lot of examples of that. You, you have the um, kakadu plum and the saltbush and so forth. So many... Many of these, I know, have been um, either now become instrumental in making jams, chutney, uh, or putting together herbs and spices from the land, from this country. And these are now used quite uh, broadly in, in certainly in the restaurant uh, industry. Uh, what we're also seeing is that many of these products, such as um, the uh, some of the products are now taking place internationally, and other countries have um, taken these de- plant species to grow in their own country. And the finger line is, is a classic example that that's really gone uh, internationally. You know, besides the, the macadamia, which had certainly it's, it's from Australia, uh, and it's Um, the other countries overseas, particularly in Hawaii and elsewhere, have have taken it on. uh, um, But it's actually a recognised plant species from this country. Same with the finger lime, It's, it's from this country and now it's taken internationally. So what we're seeing is many of our products that we would use are being shipped across the country. But Indigenous people themselves from where these uh, originally come from have not been given any kind of benefit sharing or there has not been any uh, actors and benefit sharing arrangements being sorted out with them.
1: We must end this conversation here. We'll continue the conversation with uh, Henrietta Marie AM in uh, upcoming uh, programs. Time for a break. When we come back, we have some shared stories uh, from NITV's NULA program.
5: Your community, your conversation. NITV Radio.
1: A decades-long fight for native title rights over a vast area of resource-rich land in Western Australia is finally over. The federal court has handed traditional owners native title to more than 30,000 square kilometres of the goldfields region in the state's far southeast. NITV's West Australian correspondent Karen Cox travelled to the area for the handbag.
0: In the tiny WA community of Menzies, 750 kilometres east of Perth, traditional owners and their families came together for a momentous occasion. The federal court held a special on-country ceremony to formally recognise the ten traditional owners involved in the claim. All the traditional owners here. The Nyapa Pini native title claim was named by 86-year-old senior lawman Aubrey Lynch.
3: I want to call it
1: Nalababini. old, meant many, you know, old people, many of them in the past. So we named it Pini. And now I'm saying to the young boy today, ceremony is not for young people, it's for older people. <laughs> but the
0: celebrations were tempered with sadness. The claim was first filed in 1999 and dismissed in 2007, following a lengthy trial, with some not surviving to see this day.
2: A lot of our old people are passed on. So today is a, is a milestone, it is a real big milestone in, in that history. But also, it's like I said, it's sad that they're not here.
0: The ruling covers 30,000 square kilometres of the northern Goldfields region including the shires of Laverton, Leonora and Menzies. It recognises custodians' right to engage in cultural activities, take natural resources and protect cultural sites. After a decade of setbacks against native title, the northern goldfields' traditional owners will be able to teach their law and culture again on country for generations to come. The next generation now the focus of the region's future.
2: All we can do is support them in what they want to achieve, what they want to do through the laws, through education, through sports, all of that stuff. And also support the parents as well, you
0: know. 87% of Western Australia is now subject to a native title claim, more than any other state. Karen Cox, NITV News.
4: NITV Radio. Share our stories on Facebook.
1: There was a first story shared by us uh, by uh, NOLA NITV's uh, program. Now, uh, another story from NOLA, a landmark legal case against the Australian government over the impacts of climate change on the trade has recommenced in the federal court uh, last week. Two elders from the region have travelled to NAM as they continue their campaign to sue the Commonwealth for failing to prevent climate change, which they say is destroying their homelands. Tanisha Williams reports...
2: Uncles, Paul Paba, and Paba, Paba receiving a warm welcome to Nam, Melbourne, where they continue their legal fight for their island's survival in the federal court.
1: It's very important that uh, we're standing here, uh, myself and Uncle Paul, as a painting to take this climate change mm-hmm. to tackle. It's a betterment for our future, uh, future generation.
2: They filed the case against the Australian government in 2021 after decades of watching rising sea levels take over their homelands in the Torres Strait. In June this year, the court travelled to Boigu, Saibai and Badu Islands to hear on-country evidence from traditional owners before the next phase of hearings in Melbourne.
1: Where will, where will we go from here? Yeah, our islands will go underwater. But this is why it is important for us to keep knocking on the government's door. Let them hear from us, the needs,
2: what our needs are. Over the next few weeks, the court will hear evidence from climate science experts on the impacts of climate change and rising sea levels in the Torres Strait. Australia's contribution to global greenhouse gas emissions will also be examined. This
3: case is not simply a a case to be adjudicated at the court. It is a deeply, deeply moral issue. And we hope and pray that it can be judged as a moral question.
2: Almost 9,000 people live in the Torres Strait and there are more than 200 islands between Cape York Peninsula and Papua New Guinea, but only 17 are inhabited, with some as little as a metre above sea level.
4: And I pray that all of us who have been advocates or challenging the um, climate change throughout throughout the world and throughout here in Australia. It's going to be a fruitful time for us when the decisions are
2: made. Fighting to protect 65,000 years of knowledge and culture from climate change. Tanisha Williams, NITV News.
1: Also from NOLA, operators of a space centre on the land of the Gomash people in northeast East Land have launched plans for a massive expansion of the facility. The expansion could see a rocket launched every week during peak operations. But, local member and uh, Yolno elder Yingya says the company needs to have widespread consultations with all the First Nations people that could be affected if the expansion is going to win support. Sophie Bennett reports.
5: Just out of the town of Nulamboy, this space centre could be about to get a whole lot bigger. Operators of the Arnhem Space Centre want to take 300 hectares of previously mined land to construct 14 launch pads, mission support buildings and fuel facilities. They say it will allow the centre to provide world-class space launch services. But the local MP says extensive consultations must take place first.
1: They need to do a proper consultation through, through the young through what what Indigenous law, and keeps uh, everybody not happy but satisfied that uh, everyone is safe and secure and. It's not damaging to their way of life. It's not damaging to the country that they look after and um, the sites that they own.
5: The space center has already attracted international clientele. Four. Three. Last year, NASA fired three rockets from the site. And South Korean company Innerspace plans to launch a dozen satellites from 2025. The government is backing the plan as a way to help bring more business to the Northern Territory. This project, the Prime Minister was talking with the President on the lawns of the White House just a couple of weeks ago about a project within the Northern Territory. Equatorial Launch Australia says they consulted more than 21 clans ahead of the NASA launches and have pledged to hold extensive consultations again.
1: They need to go and sit down with clan to clan. It might take a while, but it needs to happen.
5: The submission is currently open for public comment. Sophie Bennett, NITV News.
2: SBS is updating its radio schedule. From October 5, there will be more times to listen, with repeated programming on Wednesday, Friday and Saturday at 6pm on SBS1. To find out more, visit sbs.com.au slash audio.
1: Welcome back. Now, the movie Gravel Road is the story of J-Meaning the singer-songwriter of the most remote indigenous rock band in the world, the Desert Stars. This musical four-piece are traditional landowners of Spinifex country in the Great Victoria Desert in Western Australia, which is also home of the last uh, nomads. Now, the movie Gravel Road premiered last weekend in South Australia and Victoria as part of a national tour that will continue next year. Leading up to the launch, I caught up with our Gravel Road director, Tristan Pemberton.
4: NITV Radio, share our stories on Facebook.
1: The movie has won accolades internationally uh, in California, in South Africa. Uh, Can you tell us a word or two about these uh, accolades?
3: We had our world premiere last year at Phoenix in Arizona, in America, and the... The festival director there absolutely loved the film. Um, he's he's actually from Hungary, but he, he he craves these sort of rare international stories about culture. So when Gravel Road came across his table, he he said, "This is an amazing film." Uh, it did get nominated award for there, but it, it didn't win an award. But just the fact that it got screened there, and and we got I got to meet audiences and and talk about. The film that was that was remarkable, and then it went to Poppy Jasper International Film Festival in California, where it won best documentary feature. That was fantastic too. Once again, meeting an audience, having people really engage in the film, ask questions. One one thing that I found interesting with those screenings, especially in Arizona, is how people watched the film and they could recognise a similarity of landscape. You know, sort of semi-arid and. Um And that there was, you, you know, there's long, long drives between places. Of course, not not quite like Australia. Yeah, it was just great to have that film reach an international audience. And then earlier this year at SoundScreen we're in in South Africa, we won Best Road Film, Best Music Road Film. So, so I guess it is indeed officially a road film because <laughs> it's won an award for it. And once again, it's just it's just really lovely to to have an international audience recognise that this is a really special story about a really special bunch of people and and it's a bunch of people that Australia should really know more about yet it seems the spinifex people are almost invisible in mainstream Australia, but probably because they have been able to stay so remote, so isolated from so much of the ravages of the modern world, um, you know, diet, alcohol, all those, all those things. Um, but it's yeah, it's, it's, uh, look, we have been nominated some awards in Australia. I don't know whether we'll win any awards, but it's not really about that, really. Just the fact that we're getting people watching the film and, and hearing about Jay and the band, and we know that uh, every time we have sort of a screening that the, the sales of their CDs uh, increase, and it's the music's on band came, so all the money goes directly to the band, um, which, is, which is great. So if, if anybody's thinking about supporting the band on the band camp um, by the music. There's more screenings coming up. We actually have three. Yeah. So this weekend we've got one in Adelaide on Friday at Piccadilly Wallace Cinema and then there's one in Melbourne at Carlton uh, Nova on Saturday and then on Sunday in rural Victoria we have Castle Mayanus at Theatre Royal. So that's the first three events kicking off this
1: national tour. And then you travel around other states as well on uh, the eastern seaboard?
3: So the plan is then we, we're looking at doing uh, screenings early next year in Sydney and possibly Tamworth, uh, and then another screening in Brisbane and, and and somewhere rural, either northern New South Wales or um, southeast Queensland. So this stage. That's what we've got on the on the calendar. We're hoping there'll be some more. We just need to see how
1: we go. And my last question, anything you'd like to add uh, before the performance of uh, the Desert Stars, also known as uh, Blackadaka, and also the screening of uh, the movie Gravel Road?
3: I think one thing I'd say is that Gravel um, Road is definitely a community film, um, even though... Um, my name appears in the credits as a, as a director or a co-director it really is a community film I mean nothing really happens in Jara without having support of the board having support of the community and with every project that I've done in Jininjara, um, with complete respect for that process um, I always feel like I'm, uh, it's important to collaborate with the community so it's not just me sort of going and doing things it's it's me working with the community to achieve things. So every film that I've made out in Jinnanjarra is a community project. It's grassroots, it's it's engaged in community. So that means that every time I leave Jinnanjarra, I leave something behind. I'm not just there to take something, but I'm there to give something back. The community is very proud of the films that they've made. And and it's just not, not just me. There's lots of, lots of great art projects happening in Jinnanjarra. They're very very engaged community when it comes to the arts and comes to supporting the, the telling of stories through through arts through culture. So it's, it's it's been an incredible privilege for me to 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 be allowed to work with the community in that way.
1: And that was our conversation with uh, Tristan uh, Pemberton, uh, director of uh, Gravel Road. Uh, the story of uh, really one exciting band, uh, the Desert Stars. The full conversation is actually published on our website. If you want to know more about uh, the Desert Stars, also known as Black Adaka, the full story is published on our website, sbs.com.au slash radio. And that's all from us on NITV Radio this Monday afternoon. Your program will be back with more stories from right across the country next Wednesday and Friday. I'm Veteran Tonendame, thanking you for your company this afternoon. Till next time, bye for now. Luke.